Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities with Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York State is stepping up anti-terrorism efforts in response to a rise in hate crimes and growing incidents of harassment following the ongoing violence in Israel and Gaza. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. Hochul says she's upping staffing to the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force and will allocate $2.5 million to the state police to add 10 more investigators to New York City, Buffalo, Rochester, and Albany. Hochul says the actions come after investigations of bias-related incidents increased by 124 percent in October, with an over 200 percent spike in anti-Jewish incidents. We determined that the rising level of hate and anti-Semitism in particular poses a clear and present danger to the safety and well-being of all New Yorkers. And I, as governor, am doing everything in my power to fight back. Hochul says she's trying to avoid major transit disruptions during the upcoming Thanksgiving weekend after pro-Palestinian protesters briefly shut down Grand Central Station on Friday. She's also deployed the state police to synagogues and yeshivas and mosques and other places that could be susceptible to hate crimes or violence. The governor spoke after a meeting with the state's top anti-terrorism experts. State Police Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Crow says officers are investigating a number of cases. I can't talk about particular individual investigations, but I can tell you that the number has increased exponentially since October 7th. Uh, the number of investigations we're involved in as an entity, the state police and the Joint Terrorism Task Force. State police arrested and charged a Cornell University student who made violent threats against Jewish students on campus. Crow says law enforcement is also using special software to monitor social media sites and to try to counter hate speech there and flag potentially violent threats. Hochul, who says she hasn't seen so many incidences of hate-related threats and crimes since after 9-11, says the state has already set up a hotline to report bias-related incidents. Hate crimes against Muslims are also being underreported. That is not how we can deal with them. We need the public to step forward. If you've been violated, you've been harassed physically, verbally, you have to let us know so we can step up and protect you. Hochul is also meeting with Jewish and Muslim leaders. She spoke at the American Jewish Committee Board of Governors meeting on Sunday night. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. This week I sat down for a conversation with New York State Assembly Majority Leader Crystal Peoples Stokes and began by asking her what's keeping her up at night. There are a lot of problems, but I think the thing that I think about the most 
that distracts my sleep at times is how we continue to allow racism to permeate our society. I mean, after 200, 300 years of being around here, why are we still judging people based on their race as opposed to treating everybody the same way? And so I think that's the thing that concerns me the most, because if you look through not just New York state government, but I would say federal government, there's just far too many of the policies, rules, and regulations that are implemented and disseminated from a racial lens as opposed to from a human lens. And so I think that's the thing that, you know, distracts my sleep more than anything. So I stay prayerful about it. Is there a crisis with leadership these days? I mean, if you look at, for example, the former president right now and the rhetoric that he fostered when he was in office, you see the divisions among the Republicans and the Democrats at their all-time high. You even had a Republican lawmaker and a union head yesterday almost come to blows in a hearing where independent Bernie Sanders had to say, stop it, stop it, you know, and that's not the only time we've seen that, certainly in Washington, but the idea that the divisions and the hatreds and with the latest in Israel and Gaza driving up the anti-Semitism and all sorts of other hatred in the state, even prompting the governor to come out and have to put money into a task force to try to figure out what we can do to, to deal with this issue. How can we get along as a multicultural state, country, if we don't respect each other and eradicate the ignorance? Well, you know what? I'm... I'm stuck on the golden rule. I learned that as a child, both in school and in my from my parents and in church. You simply treat people the way you want to be treated. And clearly there are a lot of hurt people in our society because they have been treated wrong. And I think we see some of that playing out in government. Now, I don't know how these gentlemen who were about to come to blows on the floor of the legislature at a hearing— I don't know what it is in their past that hurt them, but something did. And it is permeating itself into a place that it should not be. There's such a need for people to get help with mental health. I mean, hurt people hurt other people. And people who are raised to dislike people, I think they end up being hurt people. And as a result of that, they go out hurting others. There are just way too many bullies in our society. It seems like we're raising them <laughs> instead of just the opposite. We should be teaching people the value of treating your neighbor the way you want to be treated. However, if you're so used to being treated in a negative and bad way, then you push that off on other people. And so I, I, I don't know how we fix these problems, but I do know that at the end of the day, um, God is no respecter of persons, and we should not be either. We should be treating people like we want to be treated at all times. If we can just get to that, we'd be in a much better place. Yeah, and when you combine that hate, we've already seen it time and time again. You and I and so many others have been over this in conversation. You had to deal with it right there in Buffalo with a mass shooting. Then they continue, and now the latest in Maine. You know, we we have to, as you say, find a different outlet to deal with these problems. But right now we've got a big one, and that's guns. That's a big one. That's a big one. But, you know, um, it is a business, and it needs a market. And apparently it's found its market, both in inner city communities amongst young black people and um, 
in suburban and rural communities amongst young white people who have been obviously mistreated and they feel like they need to go and mistreat other people and, you know, shoot up movie theaters and supermarkets and all sorts of things. These things are not innate. They're they're taught these things. They learn these things by their experience in life. And I don't know how we'll ever, you know, rid ourselves of guns. I don't think in a way we probably won't, but I do think we need to make sure that no one has access to them that does not have the proper licensing or permitting and training to have. Because if you do, then you have an ability over the person next door to you who doesn't have a weapon that puts you in a higher position than them. And that, that shouldn't be. That, that should not be. Um, so I, as a person who actually has a gun permit, I mean, I actually don't have a weapon, but I have a permit to carry one. I think people should have a right to carry one, but I don't think you should do that without access to the proper licensing for it. And I'm guessing you were willing to wait for a full background check before you got that permit. No worries. Check my background. Do all the details that you have to do. As a matter of fact, do whatever you have to do to make sure that I'm not just going to go out and hurt other people. Make sure you, you need to make sure of that. Otherwise, why would you want me to walk into Walmart and buy something that could hurt a lot of people? In in a society that's supposed to be where we live with some sort some level of safety, I'm totally opposed to it. And um, I I know that I live in a community in of Western New York where there are a lot of people who are adamantly opposed to every move that we make at state level to prohibit people who should not have weapons from having them. And I don't mind going to talk to them. And at the end of the day, we may end up disagreeing on this topic specifically, but we still end up being able to communicate. And I, I, I think at the at the end of the day, we we may not always agree, but we still have to be able to communicate without wanting to yeah. punch somebody or, or, or fight or um, stop progress just because it isn't happening the way we would like to see it happen. We have to be able to communicate with each other. And as you mentioned earlier, we— uh, this country elected a, a reality star as a president, and so we're still playing out his his, his act because there's nothing real about what they're pushing forward here. It's all an act. Everybody wants to be more important. Everybody wants more followers on Twitter. We should be trying to figure out how do we get better services to the people who we represent and that we serve because if we get a better uh, life for these folks, the cost of government – could go down, and there won't be much for those at the top to steal, or what will be left is for those people who actually do need it. I think we can treat people how to, teach people how to empower themselves, and I really wish we'd focus more on that. We were speaking with Assembly Majority Leader Crystal Peoples-Stokes, and I want to continue that conversation a little further, because before we came on, I told you about a Pulitzer Prize winner. Her name is Anna Wolf, and she's written for Mississippi Today. She won the Pulitzer Prize for her work looking at the welfare system in Mississippi and how they distributed resources to help the poor. Turned out they weren't doing such a good job, including many of it going to middle-class folks and rich folks. But the point being that in the end, the folks at the bottom were getting crumbs. And when you mention people struggling in life to get a leg up, is part of this just paying people a living wage? A huge piece of it is paying people a living wage because, by and large, 
people want to work. But if you have a job that doesn't pay you enough or pays you just over the amount where you can still get food stamps or you can still have Medicaid to cover your health care needs for you and your children, it's unlikely you're going to keep that job if you're going to lose those benefits. And so you've created an opportunity by doing not giving a living wage to make people dependent on these services that they could go for, away from if they could just get a living wage. That's New York State Assembly Majority Leader Crystal Peoples-Stokes. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. As the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency prepares its third five-year review of the removal of toxic PCBs from the Hudson River, advocates say additional cleanup is needed. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard with more. Under its agreement with the EPA, General Electric wrapped up dredging of contaminated sediment in a 40-mile stretch of the Upper Hudson in 2015. EPA is now reviewing sampling data taken from 2017 to 2021 as part of its third five-year review of the project. The federal agency predicts a release of the report for public comment in 2024. Ahead of its release, Hudson River advocates have unveiled their own independent analysis of publicly available data, including from fish and sediment samples. In a Zoom call with reporters on Tuesday, David Toman, executive director of Hudson River Sloop Clearwater, said years after dredging was completed, PCB concentrations remain above remediation targets set by EPA. The amounts of PCBs remaining in the river continues to be considerable and is causing natural re, um, causing the natural recovery of the river to occur much more slowly than was anticipated when those goals were set. At a most basic level, the contaminants remaining in the Hudson River are the limiting factor to achieving the goals and timeline for recovery of the Hudson River. Hudson Riverkeeper Tracy Brown agrees. So in summary, the data tells a clear story. Post-dredging, natural recovery is not working as EPA had anticipated in the 2002 record of decision. Our recent sampling, as we hear, shows that the PCB concentrations in sediment and fish are much higher than was modeled and are not declining at a rate that is necessary to achieve EPA's goals. Scenic Hudson Executive Director of Policy, Advocacy, and Science, Pete Lopez, previously served as regional administrator for EPA Region 2. While he was in the role, EPA issued a certificate of completion for the remedial action for the Hudson River dredging. However, as Lopez has asserted, that certification can become null and void if data shows the remedies aren't working. Lopez credits Scenic Hudson President Ned Sullivan for his advocacy and New York State Department of Environmental Conservation Commissioner Basil Segos with providing thousands of samples beyond what EPA had secured from GE. When those samples were, were combined with the EPA samples, and this was um, working with Commissioner Segos, um, actually forcing the EPA uh, career staff to do this, they had to come back and acknowledge that their prior, their prior disposition to say that the remedy was protective was not. The, 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 this group made EPA blink 
in the last five-year review and forced EPA to say that the remedy was not yet protective. Earlier this year, EPA announced it would begin working with GE to conduct new sampling in the lower Hudson. The advocates claim the agency should more strongly commit to a full remedial investigation feasibility study of the lower Hudson. Scenic Hudson's Althea Malarkey wants more communication from EPA about its ongoing sampling effort with GE. We feel that this is simply adding delay on top of delay on top of delay. Um, we feel they're not even asking the right kinds of questions in their investigative work. And we really hope that through um, people talking about this and framing the discussion, that EPA will be moved to actually order an investigation for the Lower Hudson River. Lopez also called on EPA to conduct robust sampling and engage stakeholders. My last instruction uh, before uh, handing over the reins to, to Ms. Garcia was for the EPA staff to engage thoroughly and aggressively with stakeholders in the Lower Hudson and, and begin sampling and thorough investigation. That was in concert with work that they are doing in the floodplain right now in the Upper Hudson, uh, which was underway. Uh, there's analysis going on in the Upper Hudson as well. So my direct instructions at the time were lean in, lean forward, engage our stakeholders, um, be visible, and be communicative. So I, I'm bewildered at the stance taken by the career staff at this point, to be honest. General Electric calls the Hudson River dredging project a success, citing statistics of declining PCB concentrations in water, sport fish, and sediment. GE spokesperson Mark Bean said in an email in part, quote, EPA has said repeatedly for years that dredging-related improvements in the Hudson would take time. While that is the case, the direction is clearly positive. The goals EPA set for the project are being achieved, end quote. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The war in Ukraine has been raging for nearly two years with human impacts across the globe. In New York, a family in Hoosick Falls connected with refugees through a sponsorship-focused organization. The Legislative Gazette's Aaron Shello-Levine has their story. Hey, how are you? Come on in. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Jennifer Shudig is a Hoosick Falls mom who recently decided to sponsor and take in a family of refugees fleeing Russia's invasion of Ukraine. An engineer by trade, Shudig owns a home with her husband Dan outside downtown Hoosick Falls, a village in Rensselaer County. She was driven to do something about the humanitarian crisis. At first, she wasn't looking to take in a whole family. At first, I really wanted to take in a foster kid. And because I was watching how uh, some of the Ukrainian kids were going to these camps in Russia. And uh, so I was like, well, maybe I can like foster a kid. I'm sure there's a lot of kids out there that need a parent. And there was really no way to, to do that. She eventually found Welcome.us, an organization that connects potential sponsors with would-be immigrants. Shudig compares it to Tinder or Hinge. What the platform does is you put down 
like a dating app. I can take in at maximum, you know, four people or three people. I don't want animals, you know, I don't want this, I don't want smoking. Uh, but also on the platform, I mean, when they tell you about themselves, it, it's easier to connect with somebody more like you. Welcome.us was founded in 2001 after the fall of Kabul. Victoria Dragoon, her husband Sergey, and son Nikita moved to the U.S. in 2022, but their long journey began as Russian fighters arrived in Donetsk. Victoria's family fled to the suburbs of Kyiv. The conflict followed them once again, leading to a difficult conversation. And the second time, Sergey, my husband, told that Victoria, we need to go. It's unsafe to stay here. They decided it was time to build a safer life for their teenage son, Nikita. We are not young and we need to start to, to build um, safety life, to build future for our son. Yes, and so we take our cat and, <laughs> and go. Yes, it was the first days. It was really um, unsafe to stay, to be in Kiev. Uh, and we live near, not in the city center, we live in, um, around the Kyiv, and this is the first uh, place where Russian soldiers came. Before Victoria, Sergei, and Nikita arrived, the Shudigs had to prepare their house to accommodate for another family. They emptied two rooms of their home to give the Dragoons their own space. But it was a lot of house rearranging, house uh, remodeling, a lot of cleaning, my family and friends came over and helped me clean, that it, move furniture, get furniture, assemble furniture. Despite the help from family and friends, Jennifer's daughter, Genevieve, joked that tensions could get high. Pretty stressful because my mom was like, move this, go, chop, chop. Once Victoria's family was in New York, the Shuddigs wasted no time acclimating their new companions. Dan was like, listen, if we're coming, they're coming from another country. We cannot pick them up in New York City and not see the Statue of Liberty. The surrounding community came together to welcome the Dragoons to Hoosick Falls and provide helping hands wherever possible. A lot of people <laughs> came, uh, brought us some stuff for our future apartments. So uh, we are a few days, we were with the big eyes. Victoria hit the ground running, ready to start the new life she and her family had crossed an ocean for. Victoria is a very smart, driven woman. And I think her sheer drive has gotten her and the family over here. She was very responsive with the emails on welcome.us. That was wonderful, but when she got here, she was like, okay, tomorrow we go to DMV, Social Security, uh, go visit SNAP, go, you know, and it's like, no, no, pick one. <laughs> Some obstacles took more than a day to solve. But it, it took them six weeks, probably. They are probably here for six weeks to move out. Because um, one of the problems is when a refugee comes here is they have zero credit, no credit history. So now you have to find a landlord willing to take in a family that has no credit history. The mothers weren't the only ones to get along. While they had hoped their teenage sons would bond, their husbands, Dan and Sergey, mourned when the Dragoons eventually moved into an apartment downtown owned by a former refugee. Dan was so sad. <laughs> he was like moping. Because him and Sergey, he's like a brother from another mother, I'm telling you. Because Sergey doesn't, doesn't speak English well, so they get the Google Translator app, 
and they go at it for like hours. Yes. Run yes. their battery down. <laughs> then they have to plug it in. Yes. You know? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> While the two families were instantly fond of each other, the culture shock of being in a new country often reminded them of their differences from food. Our breakfast is different. So uh, this family, <laughs> breakfast, they eat different things. And uh, uh, so it's almost maybe snacks. They love maple syrup. I kind of take that for granted in the Northeast. And camping, they like s'mores, never heard of it. And they also never heard of PB&J. To wildlife. And my husband was telling me, oh man, there's a skunk that comes around the porch sometimes. And uh, they go, skunk? What is skunk? And so we got Google Translator. Goons. We found out it's skunks. So like, okay, yeah, we see them in zoos. It's like, well, you know, it smells really, really bad. Oh, yeah, sure, whatever. So it was evening. We was in our bedroom. Uh, the windows were open. And uh, we uh, feel the smell of... <laughs> of... Uh, Cannabis, yes, yes. cannabis. Uh, and we thought, Sergey, maybe it's Jen and Dan having fun. <laughs> and then after we hear, close the window, close the window, skunk sprayed. We go, of course, we close the window, <laughs> go up uh, downstairs, and Dan told, it's skunk, it's skunk sprayed the first time, yes. They quickly felt at home. The Shuttigs set up a GoFundMe and their neighbors and friends pitched in, raising enough money to get the Dragoon's new life in America off to a good start. At Sergei's job as a chef at a local brewery, locals stick their heads in to say hello. Nikita, while not fluent in English, has a translator for some classes in high school. They may have been in a strange land, but the Shuttigs say they were never strangers. While Victoria dreams of returning to her mother, who still lives in Ukraine, she knows that day may be years away. For now, she's focused on ensuring her son can grow up in peace. So Nikita, uh, he also he's 15. He sh should uh, find a place for his future. Of course, we, we will do everything the first for him and for us um, to stay here. If everything will be okay, we can return to Ukraine. Of course, we can. Maybe we Nikita will have a good education and he will I believe in the future he will uh, do something for Ukraine. Of course, we believe in the better. But for now, I see the situation. There's more information about Welcome.us's sponsorship platform at WAMC.org. Reporting in Husik Falls, this is Aaron Shello-Levine. Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org.